being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 32 imperial japan part 3 china shanghai nanking iris chang and golden lily today i'm recording from nanking Now, for those of you keeping track on my licensed, programmed-to-chill scorecard, Imperial Japan's at 2-for-2 on false flag attacks creating a pretext for intervention and invasion. Actually, 3 if you count the 2 in Manchuria. We're talking the assassination of Empress Myung-sung, carried out by ninjas in Korea, blowing up that train with that warlord on it, and the Manchurian incident, which was the bombing of more rails in Manchuria, right? And so it was in China. In January 1932, the Special Services, which is to say Japanese military intelligence, Major Tanaka Ryuchi called for five young Japanese men to come to Shanghai. These young men belonged to a militant, ultranationalist sect of Buddhism. That was the Nichiren sect, which, if you'll recall, is the same sect that is the same sect that Lieutenant Colonel Ishihara Kanji belonged to, who carried out the Manchurian incident, right? So these young men, dressed in their monks' robes, and then went out into the streets of Shanghai. They sang songs of Japanese victories and shouted anti-Chinese and pro-Japanese nationalist slogans promoting Japanese rule over East Asia. This was a provocation, and the Chinese attacked the monks and lynched one of them. This is known as the January 28th incident, or the Shanghai incident. As you might expect, it had been arranged beforehand that the Japanese would use this as a pretext for invasion, and they did. The Imperial Navy was already stationed in Shanghai's harbor to safeguard its commercial interests. After the incident, these boats unleashed like 7,000 marines joined with Yakuza and Black Dragon goons. Though within the month, the Japanese troop presence ballooned to 100,000, and they fought against China's 19th Route Army, which had 50,000 men. First, the Japanese bombed the city from the sea, and through this aerial bombing, they killed 18,000 people, and they destroyed the homes of 240,000. One historian has pointed out that this was actually the first major terror bombing of a civilian population in world history, preceding the Spanish Civil War's Condor Legion, which bombed Guernica by five years. That, of course, was famously depicted in Picasso's Guernica painting, right? Now, unlike in Korea and Manchuria, foreigners and Westerners were there to witness Japan's overkill, and it was well reported in the world press. Partially because of this, after a month of fighting, China and Japan signed an armistice, which demilitarized Shanghai. The Japanese would not return to Shanghai until 1937. So you remember Yoshiko Kawashima, the genderqueer spy for Japan? She was living in the foreign concession in Shanghai. She was spying for who else but Major Tanaka Ryuchi, the same guy who organized the Buddhist monk provocation. He utilized her contacts with the Manchu and Mongolian nobility and integrated her and them into his spy network. 
She was there living with Tanaka when the Shanghai incident happened. In the years between 1932 and 1937, 32 of course being the Shanghai incident, 1937 being when they finally moved to invade China. In the years between, the Japanese maintained their presence in and around Shanghai. During this period, Shanghai was a very fascinating place. Kind of like Berlin during interwar periods, or a lot of regions, you know, and in certain junctures. Open cities, for instance. There were several factions in Shanghai, the first of course being the Japanese, with General Doihara running the drug trade there in conjunction with China's Green Gang, which was also based in Shanghai. Next, there was naturally the Chinese, the Chinese Nationalists, which is to say the Kuomintang, run by Chiang Kai-shek, right? They maintained a major presence there, along with two foreign enclaves run by the Mongolians and Manchu, in connection with the Manchukuo. There was also the French concession, which more or less contained all of the other Europeans in Shanghai. They had a sizable white Russian population as well, in the French concession. The Green Gang worked with both the Japanese and the French, running drugs, brothels, and gambling in both areas. And gambling in Shanghai was really something else in the 1930s. In this period, Shanghai was like the gambling capital of the world. It was bringing in over one million a week in 1930s currency. They had dog and horse racing, and one very curious foreigner calculated that Shanghai had over 100,000 prostitutes of all nationalities, especially a lot of white Russians. The Japanese already had practice extorting treasure from their time in Korea and Manchuria, and they did all the same schemes, but it went like this. The Kempei Tai would handle the large and obvious targets like the banks and the large estates, the Yakuza and the secret societies handled the drugs, alcohol, prostitution, gambling, smuggling, and other related rackets, and they would work with the aforementioned Chinese organized crime networks. Now, what passed for Shanghai's local government operated what was called an Opium Suppression Bureau. <laughs> they would confiscate opium and then give it directly to the Green Gang. At this time, Chiang Kai-shek received his drug money, like his cut, through the Farmer's Bank of China, which people jokingly called the Opium Farmer's Bank of China. For this interwar period, everyone was getting rich. General Doihara, the Green Gang, Chiang Kai-shek, everyone except the average Chinese person, obviously. That's not to say the Japanese didn't have a long-term plan, because they definitely did. They had been growing, like, unprecedented amounts of opium in Manchuria. They were also buying opium from Iran. And they were converting it to heroin in Mitsui plants in Manchuria, Korea, and Taiwan. And then they were shipping it everywhere, but especially to warehouses in China that were owned by Mitsubishi and other firms. In this period, more than a thousand different Japanese firms were manufacturing and selling drugs, including amphetamines and cocaine. Now, the Seagraves assert that the Chinese, for various historical reasons, have a tradition of hiding gold and other wealth and of not using banks, or not using them in the same ways and to the same extent as like Western cultures. As they say, the Chinese had alternate banking networks that obfuscated the flows of capital. These sorts of networks also existed in Japan to a lesser degree, 
and because they were an occupying force, they understood these hidden networks, right? Now, Japan's aims with the drug trade were to weaken China and to suck up this hidden wealth. Now, of course, we gotta talk about another false flag attack. So they pulled another false flag in order to invade China. This is in 1937. So I think this is like the fifth time I've talked about a false flag attack. We're talking one in Korea, two in Manchuria, two in China. So in Beijing in 1937, there was a standoff at the Marco Polo Bridge. This would become known as the Marco Polo Bridge Incident, although the Chinese would call it the July 7th Incident. But basically, in a moment of tension, because the Chinese army knew that Japan wanted to invade, and that they were in fact moving troops around to do it, in this context, a Japanese soldier went missing, and the Japanese demanded the right to search for him. This led to Chinese troops firing upon the Japanese, who lost the battle, but then used it as a pretext to invade. Now, speaking generally of the invasion of China, in a classic scenario, both countries dramatically overestimated their own strength and dramatically underestimated how long the coming war would go. Though, as we saw, there were prior conflicts which really did only last a few months, so, I mean, you never know which one's going to be the big one, right? Emperor Hirohito's advisors told him that war with China could be finished within two or three months, which sounds completely insane to me, even with China being weakened. Now, Chiang Kai-shek's advisors said that within three months, Japan will be on the verge of bankruptcy and facing revolution, which also seems insane. Japan was bogged down in China, having to commit a million of their troops for eight straight years, and it was in fact China who went bankrupt and faced revolution. Pretty much the exact opposite of both predictions. Now I'm not going to go into a full history of the Second Sino-Japanese War, not because I don't think it's interesting, but because it's not what I wanted Program to Chill to be about. If anything, I have found that Program to Chill is about these interstitial periods before and after major wars to be the most interesting, at least for what I'm trying to make the show about, right? Still, there's a lot of notable stuff with this war. For one thing, there's the Rape of Nanking. Content warning for discussion of sexual assault and suicide for pretty much the rest of the episode. Though I never tried to be too graphic, by the way. So the Rape of Nanking, which is also called the Nanking Massacre, took place in late 1937 to early 1938, when Chiang Kai-shek abandoned the city to the Japanese and withdrew to the interior of China. He would set up his wartime government in the mountains of the Sichuan province. Before the Japanese moved into Nanking, Emperor Hirohito sent his uncle, Prince Asuka Yasuko, to take over the campaign. He was, as you might expect, an ultra-nationalist and crazy racist, but he was also an angry alcoholic. He got up and told his army that the upcoming massacre was to teach our Chinese brothers a lesson they will never forget. I will quote from the Seagraves here. Basically, 300,000 civilians were massacred by the Japanese troops 
over a hellish month of occupation. Between 20,000 to 80,000 women of all ages were raped repeatedly, including children, adolescent girls, and grandmothers, many of them disemboweled in the process. Men, women, and children were subjected to acts of such barbarism that the entire world recoiled in horror. Thousands of men were roped together and machine-gunned, or doused with gasoline inside a fire. Others were used for bayonet practice or to practice beheading. They would hold competitions to see which officer could behead the greatest number in a day. Weeks passed while atrocities continued, streets and alleys piled high with corpses. Unlike previous mass atrocities done out of sight, these were witnessed by hundreds of Westerners, including diplomats, doctors, and missionaries, some of whom smuggled out photographic evidence." Unquote. Now, the rape of Nanking, and Japanese war crimes generally, have never been forgotten in China, and Japan continues to deny them to this day. The rape of Nanking in particular is a well-known, very controversial event. However, I wouldn't say it wasn't well-known in, but like, I think a lot of the details were not well-known to Americans until Iris Chang's seminal book, The Rape of Nanking, which was published in 1997. Her book sold half a million copies, it hit the New York Times bestsellers list, and it received widespread critical acclaim. As a result, she received honorary doctorates, she went on a 65-city book tour, and she made many appearances on national TV. She got a major media push, in other words. Now, the book she wrote is very controversial for many reasons, ranging from Japanese nationalists denying that the event happened at all, which is to be expected. Then there's U.S. scholars who suggest that some of her scholarship was flawed or sloppy. There are others claiming that she erased the contributions of brave Japanese scholars who were fighting to acknowledge Japan's imperial sins. Now, I'm willing to believe she might have been sloppy in some of her academic scholarship. I can't, like, I don't know whether she was or not, but... The massacre is pretty well documented, so, like, obviously we can just ignore the Japanese ultra-nationalists, right? I'm not too worried talking about that aspect of it. As a personal note, I actually read the Rape of Nanking book in middle school. I have no idea how or why I got a hold of it, but it made a major impression on me. And in retrospect, it might actually explain a little bit about my morbid curiosity about world historic tragedies, right? So Iris Chang wrote the book in part because her family actually escaped the Nanking Massacre. I've been saying this, all history is family history. And I could make a pretty long list of history books that I have read that were written more or less because of personal family grievances. And like, anytime that happens, I love it. I love to hear about that. Obviously, you have to take their perspective with a grain of salt, but, you know, you're doing that anyway, reading history, so whatever. Also, the Rape of Nanking book was Chang's second book. Her first was about Xian Shushen, who was one of the founders of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Shushen was accused of being a communist spy, and he was pushed out of JPL. Then, he went to China to work on their missile programs. I've read about him to a degree, but I would love to read that book because it is such a wild story. Anyway, Chang, living in San Jose, was subjected to harassment from Japanese ultranationalists, if you could believe that. 
Now, some people suggest that her suicide was due to this harassment or that they killed her. But from my perspective and from what I've been able to research, it does not seem likely that they murdered her. It also doesn't really seem likely that their harassment of her was particularly intense. No, what happened to Iris Chang was much more complicated. Her husband said that Iris Chang was taking many unregulated herbal supplements. Like, an extremely high amount of them, too. And he says that one of their doctors said that overuse of unregulated herbal supplements, like in the doses she was taking, can in fact cause mental illness. He also cited her fear of the Japanese right-wing extremists. He also cited her strenuous work habits. All of this leading to a breakdown that happened when she was in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, according to an epilogue that her husband wrote in one of her books, in, in The Rape of Nanking, her husband says that she spiraled out of control when, when they began to realize that their son might have autism. And he says that she started researching vaccines, Gulf War Syndrome, the 2004 Manchurian Candidate movie, and mind control, all of which heightened her anxiety. She was in Louisville, in the first place, on a research trip to interview Colonel Arthur Kelly and to interview him and other survivors of the Bataan Death March from World War II. Her husband says that she was there doing that, but also spent her time researching the aforementioned topics instead of sleeping. Her husband wrote, She believed that the government was trying to poison her, so she refused to eat or drink anything after she left our home. Her condition deteriorated rapidly due to the deprivation of food, water, and sleep. When Colonel Kelly and his wife, a retired nurse, saw her condition, they called for an ambulance. Iris became convinced that they were part of a conspiracy to do her harm, so she tried to flee. Police and paramedics forced her to go to the Louisville Hospital for extensive tests. She was placed in the psychiatric ward, where, according to Iris, she was repeatedly threatened by the orderlies. By this time, she was firmly convinced that they were trying to drug her or poison her, so she once again refused to eat or drink anything or sleep while she was there. If Iris had her breakdown at home surrounded by people she loved and trusted, it would not have been nearly as traumatic for her. Instead, she concluded that the people who had tried to help her in Louisville were all part of a Bush administration conspiracy to harm her. During the last three months of her life, we could never get, we could never get her to let go of that belief. After her parents brought her home from the Louisville hospital, we had trouble finding a good psychiatrist to treat her. To compound the problem, Iris was not a cooperative mental health patient. Iris's experience in solving our fertility problems caused her to lose respect for most medical doctors. Iris would so thoroughly research the topic that she would overwhelm the doctors she met. After that experience, she had very little faith in most medical doctors. This was at a time when we desperately needed to find a good psychiatrist. We even more desperately needed Iris to follow the treatment plan, but she fought it every step of the way. Iris's parents and I thought it would be a good idea to take her to a bipolar personality support group, so they brought her to a meeting at Stanford University. The people she saw there were not winning the battle with bipolar disorder. Almost none of them were working and many were on five or six medications. Iris described them as zombies and said she would never allow herself to be medicated like that. Shortly afterwards, 
her psychiatrist formally diagnosed her with bipolar personality disorder, meaning that she should be treated with mood-stabilizing drugs rather than antidepressant and antipsychotic drugs. The suicide risk for mental health patients goes up during changes in medication. The powerful antipsychotic and mood-altering drugs she took seemed to cause many side effects in her. Two days after the diagnosis and change in medication, her mother found a gun safety course brochure from Reed's Guns in Iris's purse. This was the first indication we had that she had any plans to buy a gun. When we questioned her, she told us she believed the U.S. government was out to get her and she needed a gun to protect herself. The combination of meeting the heavily medicated bipolar personality disorder patients, Iris's formal diagnosis of bipolar personality disorder, her change in medications, and the resulting side effects all put Iris in a very unstable state. Iris's parents, her psychiatrist, and I tried to find people who were successfully coping with bipolar personality disorder to talk to Iris and to give her encouragement, but we ran out of time. After her experience at Louisville, Iris firmly believed that the Bush administration meant to do her harm. She was hopeful that John Kerry would defeat George Bush in the 2004 election, but Bush's victory was announced on November 3rd. Her thoughts of four more years of persecution were too much for her. The police investigation after her death concluded that she purchased the handgun the very next day. My words here now. Iris Chang wrote three suicide notes. I will read the final one because the first two are depressing and specific to her family. Quote, there are aspects of my experience in Louisville that I will never understand. Deep down, I suspect that you may have more answers about this than I do. I can never shake my belief that I was being recruited and later persecuted by forces more powerful than I could have imagined. Whether it was the CIA or some other organization, I will never know. As long as I am alive, these forces will never stop hounding me. Days before I left for Louisville, I had a deep foreboding about my safety. I sent suddenly threats to my own life, an eerie feeling that I was being followed in the streets, the white van parked outside my house, damaged mail arriving at my P.O. box. I believe my detention at Norton Hospital was the government's attempt to discredit me." Unquote. On November 9, 2004, Iris Chang was found dead in her car on a rural road south of Los Gatos, California. Investigators concluded that Chang had shot herself through the mouth with a revolver. Now, her husband does not believe that she was being persecuted by the government. Or at least he wrote that in the epilogue to the rape of Nanking. Keep in mind that her husband did have children he had to take care of. Her breakdown does sound like mental illness, but we know how complex that can be. The worst case scenario is someone suffering from paranoia when they are actually also being persecuted. I've talked about the presence of MKUltra psychiatrist doctors in Kentucky, with the Trillbillies in fact, and in future episodes we will talk about very dark crimes that have been carried out between the Japanese and US business, military, and intelligence networks up to the present time. Iris Chang was clearly selected and given a media push for some strategic reason. We know that the publishing industry is, you know, controlled right. And it is not impossible, it's not even unlikely to think that Chang, that Chang was recruited to some end. And why is this reasonable? I might have mentioned this in a premium episode, but 
We have a report from the Senate Select Committee to study governmental operations with respect to intelligence activities, known as the Church Committee Report, which quotes the chief of the CIA's covert action staff in charge of the covert propaganda program. He says, and I quote, Books differ from all other propaganda media primarily because one single book can significantly change the reader's attitude and action to an extent unmatched by the impact of any other single medium. This is, of course, not true of all books at all times and with all readers, but it is true significantly enough to make books the single most important weapon of strategic long-range propaganda." To that end, the CIA sought to control book publishing and book distribution during the Cold War. They produced, subsidized, and sponsored thousands and thousands of books. So do you think that stopped with the Cold War? And all the more so when we come to books that are, you know, bestsellers, right? I will let you draw your own conclusions on the story of Iris Chang. Back to China. It was during the rape of Nanking that the Imperial Japanese created another secret society called the Golden Lily, named after one of Emperor Hirohito's poems. The Seagraves describe Golden Lily as a palace organization of Japan's top financial minds and specialists in all forms of treasure, including cultural and religious antiquities, supported by accountants, bookkeepers, and shipping experts, and units of the army and navy, all overseen by princes of the blood. When China was milked by Golden Lily, the army would hold the cow while the princes skimmed the cream. This organization was put directly under the command of the emperor's brother, Prince Chichibu, unquote. Golden Lily was formally integrating several pre-existing programs, including General Doihara's spy and crime networks. What we're talking about is the formalization of what they were already doing, except this time making sure that the loot went to the right people. And by the right people, I mean directly to the Japanese royal family and the power elite. Conservative estimates of the rape of Nanking have a first wave of looting by the Kempeitai stealing 6,000 metric tons of gold from bank vaults, homes, buried stashes, tombs, and corpses. They also took books and manuscripts, precious stones, art, artifacts, valuable vases and rugs, and anything of value. By the way, assuming that estimates about the amount of gold in the world is true, which is not at all certain, some people say, like for instance the BBC, that there's only 171,000 metric tons of gold in the entire world, anywhere. So this would have been about 3% of all the gold in the world that they took from the first wave of looting. What the Seagraves suggest is that there is more gold in the world than what these estimates say, but that's a whole other conversation, and I'm not well equipped to have it yet, but we'll, we'll keep moving. The second wave of looting involved shaking down, kidnapping, threatening, extorting bankers, wealthy citizens, heads of pawn shop networks, clan elders, triad bosses, and so on. But this was like pretty brutal stuff. Like this was taking family members of these people and threatening to kill them in front of their families in order to get them to go dig up family gold, right? Now, Emperor Hirohito because he was the sun god emperor, he never really got to visit all over the western world. But his brother, Prince Chichibu, did. 
Prince Chichibu studied at Oxford, he climbed the Swiss Alps, he had dinner with Adolf Hitler. He was perhaps the most cosmopolitan member of the royal family, and he was the, therefore the best choice to run the Golden Lily. Reportedly, he and another royal, Prince Takeda, they both spoke about having horrific nightmares about what they saw at Nanking. We will talk about the Golden Lily more in future episodes. Let's cover just one more thing today. Six months before the rape of Nanking, General Doihara brought in Japan's top gangster to loot China. That's right, Yoshio Kodama, who we talked about last episode. Kodama was born in occupied Korea. He joined the Black Dragon Society. He spent his formative years helping to loot Manchuria. He was already extremely rich. Kodama was brought in first to Shanghai, where he became the main go-between for General Doihara and the Green Gang. Kodama's post-war memoir describes the wanton spending of secret funds on wine, women, and debauchery in every city under Japanese occupation. He describes the careless destruction of valuable objects in every temple and shrine. In the occupied areas, I found the heads of Buddhas broken or cut off. If soldiers, mostly uneducated farm boys, were too stupid to steal the whole Buddha, they must be shot. His words, of course. Kodama took control of the underworld in Shanghai. He reported, like I said, directly to General Doihara and Prince Chichibu. Kodama performed the very valuable role as the guy converting narcotics into gold, then handing the gold to Golden Lily's aristocrats. One of Kodama's key assistants was Yi Ching Ho, who was a Chinese drug boss. Kodama installed Yi in Taiwan as a warlord later. Kodama had a system for when he would visit a town or village. His system would involve assembling the mayor and the heads of prominent families and clans. Then, right off the bat, he would shoot the mayor, which would ensure cooperation from everyone else. Part of his deal with the Japanese power elite appears to have been for Kodama to hand over all of the gold and art and other type of treasure, but that Kodama would keep for himself any platinum that he found. Later, he switched from platinum to high-quality rubies, sapphires, and diamonds, which were more valuable per pound at that time. It's easy to forget that Kodama technically needed a cover to be in Shanghai. The Japanese were so flagrant about their war crimes, but we forget sometimes that they did make an effort to have cover sometimes. Kodama's cover was that he was the buyer for the Imperial Navy Air Force. On paper, his mission was to locate and acquire supplies of copper, cobalt, nickel, and mica. Later, before Pearl Harbor and war with the U.S., Kodama was transferred from the Army to the Navy, and he was promoted to the rank of Rear Admiral. The Seagraves describe this as the equivalent of making Al Capone a U.S. Navy Admiral. When Pearl Harbor occurred, Kodama was in place in Shanghai to steal everything from Westerners, bank accounts, businesses, and assets. Let's talk about conclusions. So it goes without saying, but Imperial Japan really loved to do false flag attacks to make themselves look like victims. It's probably necessary on some level to maintain some veneer of legitimacy with their ultra-nationalist citizens, and let's not underestimate how cucked and controlled their media was. Still, it's downright ridiculous how often they pulled that card. 
and it sort of underscores my view of things with, like, the Gulf of Tonkin incident and, you know, more recent events when you realize how often this trick has been pulled off, right? I'm certain that it says something about the fascist psychology, but, I mean, this didn't fool anyone in the international world. This was mainly to trick their domestic population, I think. Then we saw how Japan used the drug trade to enrich themselves and to undermine China. Drugs can be a weapon. Britain did it, Japan did it, and, you know, other countries. Then we saw that the Japanese army was extremely sadistic towards the Chinese. That's very obvious in the Rape of Nanking, but by no means was that an outlier. That was like the general rule. This was racist imperialism, but with modern weaponry, and it was a horror to behold. Then there's the case of Iris Chang. For some reason, she got a media push. She was possibly recruited for something. Then she either got hung out to dry or crushed by another faction, maybe. Then something bad happened to her at Louisville, and she spun out of control. I don't think she was suicided, but something bad happened. Whatever you think happened, I think it's a lesson to learn from. Now, a lot of these threads are going to start connecting in future episodes, but I would also like to close out by saying something sincere. I don't want to sound preachy or anything, but I do think Iris Chang is a cautionary tale. Don't take too many supplements, but more importantly, if you get in too deep on something real or imagined, it's always okay to take a step back to get away from things, to find some balance in life, and to remember that there are more important things in life than all this shit that I talk about on Program to Chill. To close out, I would like to read a quote from Barbara Tuckman, who is one of the historians who wrote about China. She says, Disaster is rarely as pervasive as it seems from recorded accounts. The fact of being on the record makes it appear continuous and ubiquitous, whereas it is more likely to have been sporadic in both time and place. Besides, persistence of the normal is usually greater than the effect of the disturbance, as we know from our own times. After absorbing the news of today, one expects to face a world consisting entirely of strikes, crime, power failures, broken water mains, stalled trains, school shutdowns, muggers, drug addicts, neo-Nazis and rapists. The fact is that one can come home in the morning, in the evening, on a lucky day without having encountered more than one or two of these phenomena. This has led me to formulate Tuckman's Law as follows. The fact of being reported multiplies the apparent extent of any deplorable development by five to tenfold, or any figure the reader would care to supply. Unquote. That's the cardinal rule of Program to Chill. Chill out. Keep cool, but care, dear listeners. For sources today, I used a book called Manchu Princess, Japanese Spy, by Phyllis Birnbaum, along with the book The Rape of Nanking, The Forgotten Holocaust of World War II. I used Sterling and Peggy Seagrave's book Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold, as well as David Kaplan and Alex Dupro's book Yakuza, Japan's Criminal Underworld. Thank you for listening, dear listener. If you like what you hear, check out my Patreon, where I do additional episodes, usually on, like, one-off related events. It's some really fun stuff, so check it out on Patreon. I need to be on my way. I'm headed to the Texas School Book Depository at Dealey Plaza. See you next episode, and God bless.
Oh, 